You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. This is 1 Samuel 6. We're going to do verses 1 through 8. The Philistines have just stolen the ark of God from Israel. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, with what shall we send it to its place? We want to send the ark back, but what gift should we put on the ark to send it back? The priest said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty. And please understand, this is not good what they're saying. Do not send it empty, but by all means, return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And this is weird, everybody. The priest answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So in other words, they said, take the consequences of your sin and enshrine them in gold and give them to God. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and also off of your gods of the land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take the calves home away from them. The sea. This seems like an awful lot of work. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at, put in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go on its way. The word of the Lord, God, help us understand what all that means. And now Courtney will read the gospel. A reading from the gospel of Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, and chapter 22, verses 31 through 34. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And in chapter 22, Jesus is speaking to Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Courtney. So interesting. You read these stories every year when you read your Bible through in a year like all of you do from beginning to end every single year. And you get to these stories where the Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant and immediately they start having plagues and the priests say, here's what you got to do. You need to, you need to appease God. God, so their view of God is he's the kind of God that will perform violent acts on you and then until you pay him off. 
and then he'll heal you. So what I want you to do is I want you to make golden images of the tumors, the, these consequences. You guys have been having cancer, and you guys have been having mice, and I want you to make golden images of the cancer and golden images of the mice, and I want you to add it to the presence of God. I want you to put it on the ark, and then I want you to send the presence of God away from you. The funny thing is, I've seen good fellows too. I love casino. I will sit through the four-hour movie known as The Irishman. I love Italian mob movies. And oftentimes, we treat God just like a mob boss. I'm going to tithe so that God protects me is something that people say to the mafia. I will give you money for protection. You don't buy providence from God. He's not the mob boss. He's not Al Pacino. He's not Robert De Niro. Thank God. But the Philistines, the enemies of Israel, think that he's the kind of God that he won't give you forgiveness if you don't offer something to him first. Because that's the kind of authority and lordship they know. And here's the thing, Salem. Every one of us, starting with me, I have had to sit through this message. I didn't preach it. This is not from the lectionary. This is not what everybody's preaching in all the other churches. This is something God put on my heart about a month ago. And I had to sit with it and find out where do I also do this. This is the kind of message that I feel is supposed to be enfleshed by me before I could preach it. Where have I so identified who I am by the sins I've committed? And where have I made idols of the consequences of my sins? Where have I looked at sin's consequence and enshrined it in gold? And where have I enshrined the sins of others in gold? So that I'll see them, but always remind them of their consequences as well. This is how relationships break down. They break down because we enshrine our consequences in a never-ending encasement called gold. And everywhere we go, we carry the tumors and the mice. And every time we experience the presence of God, yes, he's good, and yes, he's glorious, but what haunts me still is this gold these consequences. I can't quite be in the light as he is in the light because I have these other artifacts that I just, I can't forget about. There's a story of a very mystical, orthodox, Roman Catholic nun, and her, her monastery was right near a kingdom, and it's, it's a fable. And the king says, I'm sick of looking at this monastery. Prove to me that your God is real. Tell me, go and ask your God what my deepest, darkest sin is. And if you come back and tell it to me, I'll believe in him. So she leaves, and months go by, and she never comes back. And one night, the king, after months, commits his most shameful act. And the very next day, word is brought to him, the nun is going to come see you. And he's like, oh no, I shouldn't have done this. And right away, he says, before she even shows up, he says, God must be real, because I haven't seen or heard from her in months, and then I commit this most shameful act, and now she wants to see me. She knows. And so the nun shows up, and she says, you committed sin last night, and I asked God what you did, and God told me he doesn't remember. God doesn't want us making gold shrines of our sin. We need not remind God of what he's already forgotten about. What's sad about this is that the Philistines had to steal the ark to begin with. This is sinful on both Israel's end and the Philistines' end because the ark should never have to be stolen. The presence of God should never either be possessed by a group of people like Israel or the church, and it should never have to feel like it needs to be stolen by another group of people. 
the, oh, the presence of God should always be something that is shared back and forth in mutual excitement. So the fact that the Philistines had to steal it is sinful, and the fact that they needed to steal it is sinful on Israel's end. We don't hoard the presence of God here. We learn in this room how to offer the presence of God to others. And the ironic thing is, the Philistines never looked into the presence of God. They added artifacts to the presence of God, but they never looked in the presence of God because in the Ark of the Covenant are three items. And if you know your Bible, you know what they are. Aaron's rod that budded. To let Israel know that in my presence, even your rebellion will turn sweet. Manna, even in your lack of faith in me, I'll still feed you. And the Ten Commandments, I will teach you how to be like me for the sake of others. Do you know what is not in the Ark of the Covenant? God didn't put a perpetual frozen piece of the hail he sent to Egypt that will never melt so that you always know that if you mess up, I'll hit you in the head with ice. He didn't put that in there. He didn't put a piece of the bronze serpent to let them know that if you cross me, snakes will bite you. He never told Adam and Eve, hey, take a piece of that fig that you ate when the devil tempted you and put it in a box because I always want you to be reminded of that. All he had in his presence are three reminders of his mercy and grace. And here's the Philistines adding images that speak that as if there's no mercy and no grace, but a God who needs to be appeased. Salem, we do this in our relationships. When we carry around sin that we've enshrined, that we can't let go of, we send the presence of God away. We keep our relationships right at the point where if it gets any closer and any better, I'm going to sabotage it. Because I don't feel worthy of love. Like Dr. King said, I don't feel like I count because I don't feel like I can be loved because I don't feel like I'm worthy because I've sinned and push the presence of God away. Peter, in the text that Courtney read, is a Philistine. He's in a boat. Peter obviously has sins from his past that, as he's a fisherman, are just in him like tumors, like cancer that he doesn't know about. And as he's fishing, and as he's living, and as he's successful, he's slowly forgetting that there's these golden tumors and mice in him. And then some man steps in his boat and performs a miracle, and he realizes this is none other than the Ark of the Covenant himself. And he does to Jesus what the Philistines did to the ark. Get away from me. Send it away. Why? Here's the tumors. I'm a sinful man. He does to Jesus what the Philistines did to the ark. He's enshrined his sin so much that he thinks now his sin is greater than the God who just got in his boat. And he sends him away. Because he doesn't feel worthy to be loved. Because he's angry because he's hurt, because he's been hurt. He has enshrined sin in his life, and he's enshrined the sin of others in, in his life. And when Jesus showed up, all the tumors, all the cancer, holding on to your sin, there is no worse form of cancer that any of us could ever get than the kind where we hold on to sin that Jesus has already healed in us. Push the presence away. Push the ark away. But then Peter does something else later in life. The second text that Courtney read. Peter goes from, please hear this, he has unprocessed sin. Sin in his life that he's enshrined. Sin in his life that he feels he just forever deserves consequences for. Sin in other people's lives that he's forever going to hold over their head. And then when he meets the love of God, and here's what he says. He says to Jesus, get away from me. And what is Jesus' response? Jesus is like, here's the thing. I'm not like the box called the Ark of the Covenant that was pointing to me. You could send that thing away. It had wheels on it. But here's the thing, Peter. The more you try to send me away, the closer to you I'm going to get. I'm going to get so close to you, I'm going to change your name from Simon to Peter. I'm going to get so close to you that you're going to strengthen your brothers. You can try to push me away, but I will not be pushed away. Because if you push me away... And and you run that way, when you get there, I'm there. 
And then if you try to run the other way when you get there, I'm there. And I'm also the whole space in between all the areas that you're running. You can't get rid of me, Peter. So Peter eventually, like all of us, gets really, really sold on this idea. And now he does the opposite. First, he's saying, get out of my boat. I'm a sinful man. I'm not worthy. And then he's saying, if all of these deny you, I won't. Peter, what just happened? Peter, you went from, I can't do anything right. Now, now you're just like, now you're like outliving everybody that you have around you. Do you see these two dichotomies? Either Peter is sending Jesus away or he's sending his friends away. He's either saying, I'm not worthy of anything, or he's saying, they're not worthy of anything, I am. And Salem, let me tell you, this preaching is prevalent. Go to YouTube, go to Instagram, follow some preachers. There's horrendous preaching out there. I'm not going to quote names, even though I want to terribly. And actually today thought for a moment that I should. But I won't. I'd rather be wrong not saying something I should have said than be wrong saying something I shouldn't have said. Everybody write that down, especially husbands. Write it down. Be wrong not saying something if you're going to be wrong. Try not to be wrong saying something. One pastor said this, you know why there was a serpent in the garden? Because salvation needs an anti-voice in order to be salvation. And then walked around like he just said something. Like, I'm like, what are you, wa- you should be walking around to walk off. Where are you going? Salvation needs an anti-voice to be salvation? Really? God needs Satan to be God? Where are you coming from? Put the microphone down now. Nobody, sh- I'm on there like, nobody like this. Help us, God. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Break the internet. Get this off. But we really do live this way. Have you heard somebody say something like, the area where the devil tempts you is really a revelation where God was sending you? Crap. Garbage. The area where the devil makes you fail is a revelation of your purpose. Be nice, because we said we're going to preach on friendship. The devil is not a light that shines in God's darkness. God is a light that shines in the devil's, and when that light shines, the darkness cannot overcome it. So where Satan tempts you is not a revelation of the kind of person you were supposed to be. Where you fail is not a revelation of where you were supposed to be going. Here's the real gospel. When you're tempted, Jesus reveals that he's enough for you so you don't have to bite at that temptation. When you fail, Jesus reveals to you that he got to your failure before you did. And when you fall all the way down to your failure, he's been waiting for you there. Satan doesn't reveal anything. He's not a revealer. He's a deceiver. He's darkness. His temptations don't reveal anything. Jesus reveals. Well, you know, in, in Matthew 4, when we, see Jesus, when we see Satan tempting Jesus, we can see in the temptations what Jesus' purpose was supposed to be. True, but the only reason you can see Satan in the wilderness is because the light is there. Jesus is there. Satan only shows up on the stage when the light of God lets him be seen. That is not the story of Satan revealing to Jesus what his destiny was supposed to be and trying to trick him. That's the story of Jesus saying, you have no idea who I am. Throw all your darts. And my responses to them will reveal to the world who you are and who I am. But we have elevated sin in our teaching and in our preaching, and we use sin to define ourselves. We use sin to categorize. We use sin to choose our sermons. We use sin in our witnessing. We use threat. We use consequence. And none of those things breed love. None of them do. You could get your kids to obey you because of consequences. It doesn't mean they love you. It just means they want what you are offering. And when they're four, that's good. When they're 14, you got to do better. I remember my 30th birthday, Jacqueline threw me a a supplies party. You can tell I own a home now. I used to, like, 
love the Domino's commercials, but now when like Lowe's commercials come, I'm like, oh yeah, wow, that, that, that nail gun really does that? She has Pastor Mark call me and say, there's a flood at the church. Can you come here and help me? It was actually my birthday. Can you come here and help me dump water? Which I take as the best compliment I've ever gotten that Jacqueline knew I would say yes to serving the Lord on my birthday, even on my birthday. So I came, jeans all rolled up, ready for the flood, walked downstairs, everyone scares the heck out of me. And she had about eight tables down there, and each table was a theme from something I love in my life. And that memory popped into my head today when I was talking about how Jesus gets to our failure before we do. You see, what Jacqueline did was Jacqueline said, he's going to come here thinking there's a flood. And when he comes down, he's going to realize that we got here, and it's the opposite. of It's not like there's no flood. There's something even better in its place, this celebration of all of your likes. That's what Jesus does to your failure before you get there. He sees you failing, and he runs ahead, and he goes, oh, my gosh, I'm going to decorate this place of failure. And they don't even know when they get here how all of a sudden, boom, it's the cross. You're fine. I've decorated it for you. It's, all, it's better than you could imagine. That's what he does. That's what melts the golden tumors and turns it into the gold of sanctification. But when we hold on to cancerous sin, when we view, when we enshrine people's behavior toward God, instead of enshrining God's behavior toward us, we put a ceiling on every relationship we will ever have, including our own relationship with ourself. We will forgive everybody and avoid forgiving ourselves. Partly because we either feel too guilty or because it seems too cheap. I can just be forgiven? Yes. And he can strengthen me to go back and strengthen the people I've wronged? Yes. It seems too good to be true. Welcome to Easter Sunday. It seems like we could take advantage of that kind of grace. Welcome to Good Friday. We need, we need to hear the diagnosis that we have cancer. There's sin we're holding on to. Look what Jesus does to Peter. John 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again. Everybody say again. Again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. This is the famous story that we all know where Peter is about to see Jesus after he's denied him three times. But first, notice what it says. It says Jesus revealed himself to his disciples again. See, Jesus knows how many times you need him to reveal himself to you before you will turn. That's why you need to be patient to somebody in your life who's not saved. Don't see them as the enshrined golden sin of their behavior. See them as somebody who might need Jesus to reveal himself to them again. And please don't ever start to think you know how many agains there needs to be in somebody else's life. This was the again Peter needed. Jesus shows up for Thomas. Is Thomas there? No. Jesus shows up eight days later. Is he there then? Yes. And Jesus would have kept showing up until Thomas was there. He will show up as many times as he needs to show up for somebody to choose him. And there isn't one person he won't keep showing up for. He's got 99 sheep that have finally turned, and he's going to keep showing up again for the one until heaven is not heaven until all his children are there. There you go. Chew on that, everybody. He reveals himself again. First two times he revealed himself, Peter kind of stood in the shadows, still wrestling with that enshrinement of his denials. Jesus shows up again. And he shows up, John wants us to know, on the Sea of Tiberias. Why wouldn't they just call it the Sea of Galilee? Because Tiberius was the name of the Caesar of the day, Tiberius Caesar. See, this is why I obsess over every inch of Scripture. And it's why it's not work to read it. It's fun. Because every word matters. 
In the book of Esther, the king says, ask me what you want, and I will give you even up to, say it out loud, half of my kingdom. This sex trafficking king who's kidnapped women for his own pleasure says, now that you've pleased me, ask me what you want, and I'll give you even up to half of my kingdom. Do you know what other king in the Bible says the same thing? Trivia question. In the New Testament, there's a king who says the exact same thing. King Herod says it's Herodias. Now that you've danced for me, see, there always seems to be a connection between sexual perversion and violence. And now, now that you've danced for me, now I'll say to you, what do you want even up to half my kingdom? This is what the Tiberius spirit does in leaders. When you've appeased me enough, then I'll give you something, but I'm only going to give you up to half because I'm never going to let you own me. You could buy 49.5% stock. Why does John tell us that it's the Sea of Tiberias? Because Jesus is about to show up as the first emperor who doesn't act that way. Who doesn't say, pay me off and then I'll offer you half. Jesus doesn't say, give me an offering and I'll give you some. Jesus says, I am an offering and I'm offering you all of my kingdom. Every inch of my kingdom belongs to you. Well, what do we need to offer you for this? I'm an offering. So, Pastor, are you saying God doesn't want us to offer? No, I'm saying God does want us to offer, but not to get him to do things and not to appease him. Why does he want us offering our tithes and offerings? Why does he want us offering our repentance? Why does he want us offering our praise? Not to pay him off, but because he himself is an offering. So when we offer, we're being like him. And that's all a parent wants is to see my children do what I've done. So he doesn't want us offering tithes for protection. He wants us offering tithes because when we offer, we're being like him because he offers. When we offer forgiveness to others, we're not doing that so that we're forgiven. We're doing it because when we offer forgiveness to others, we're being like him. But we have to be forgiven and own our forgiveness to be able to offer forgiveness without leverage. We've all said it before. How can you do this to me? I forgave you for this yesterday. Now you haven't forgiven them. You can't say what you've forgiven as leverage because now you've used it as a consequence. I know. Every time I read the Bible, Jeff, I'm like, oh my gosh. I should just sit in a wholesome place and not say anything. I might have a chance of getting it right. You can't offer forgiveness and then say, I forgave you for that. You can't offer forgiveness and say, how many times did I not say anything when you said this stuff, and now I'm tired of it? How many times do I have to clean? And then when we say these things, we're proving that we were never serving or forgiving. We were manipulating because now we're using it as collateral against the person. He told you my sin. I asked him. And he said he doesn't remember. That is the word of the church to the world. Does he know what I've done? No. He just knows you. And that's enough. What does he do to Peter? First of all, I'm not preaching for four weeks, so sit tight. Simon Peter said in verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. <laughs> I'm going fishing. Do you understand what has happened in this man's life? How many of you have ever felt like, I think it's called the Sunday scaries, when you start to realize work is coming tomorrow? And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, I was having such a good weekend. And then if you're a teacher, August is kind of like the Sunday of the church year, of the, of the, of the calendar. Like, August feels like the longest Sunday. Like, you can't go to the store now. You see school supplies and stuff. 
we were going to announce the back to school prayer meeting. I just didn't want to do that to anybody yet. So we're not going to announce that it's the final Thursday of August. We're not going to make that announcement. Bye, Sophia. <laughs> Peter was fishing. And Jesus put fish into his boat. And Peter's response is, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. Peter is bitter. Peter is tired. Peter is fatigued. It says in Luke 5 that Peter caught nothing, which is really a metaphor for his whole life. He's trying to do well. He's trying to have meaning in his life. He wants his life to count, and his life is catching nothing. Fishing has become an omen for Peter. Fishing is where I think about the golden tumors and the mice. Fishing is where I, I rejected God and said, don't follow me. Fishing is where he took me from my boat, and then I made all these other mistakes. If he just would have left me alone, I never would have denied him. If he would have just left me alone, none of this would have happened. Yes, I saw amazing things, but if he would have just left me alone, I would just be fishing and everything would be fine. I would just be a bitter little, little fisherman in my boat somewhere, minding my own business, which would have been painful but better than denying the Son of God and then having to see that he's risen from the dead twice. Why did you have to call back? Why did I have to go out on that date? Why did I have to say yes to that job? Why did I have to make that one comment? We do this all the time, and here's Peter, and after all of that, he says, let's go fishing. The Sunday scaries don't scare him anymore. He's okay going back to the job he hated because something in him has been healed of cancer. And now he can go back and say, if I catch nothing, I've really caught everything. Something's already changed in him, unbeknownst to him. He's about to realize something changed in him. But something has already changed where he can go back to the place of his own failure and go fishing again. And guess what? In this story, what does he catch? Nothing. He's fishing in this story, and he's once again catching nothing. But there's no sense of angst. There's no sense of worry. There's no sense of bitterness because something deeper than the materialistic idealism around him has changed. God has removed the enshrinement of his sin that he's been holding against himself and against others. Tell me to get out of the boat. I'll be more impressive than the rest of the disciples. And Jesus is like, okay, you need to know that you're not, so come on out here. Kerplunk, okay. Nobody ever tries to walk on water again. He calls us out upon the water to sink us so we stop trying to be impressive. He pushes Jesus away in a boat. He sinks embarrassingly in the Sea of Galilee, and he overtly says at a charcoal fire, I will never deny you. Look what Jesus does here, Salem. Look what he does. He puts Peter back in a boat, and Peter catches nothing. And Jesus says, cast your net to the other side again. And Peter catches fish. And this time he doesn't say, get away from me. He says, oh, I, I would have taken my shoe off, but I would have broke my foot off. He, he strips and jumps in the water and swims. He doesn't say, get away from me this time. Because there's no cancer. He's let go of it. It's been dissolved in him. And where does he dive into? What does he dive into? He dives into the sea. He sunk in. But it doesn't embarrass him. He swims right on through the place of his failure. Has anybody like ever been invited back to a high school reunion and you don't want to go? Because life didn't work out the way you thought it would and everyone's going to be asking, what do you do? Peter dives right back in to the place where he failed and he swims through it because it's not discouraging to him because all he knows is I found Jesus in the boat when I sinned and when I was at the bottom of this lake, his hand was the only hand, not the disciples. His hand was the only hand reaching down to get me. So if his hand is here, I'm diving right back in. And then he gets to the other side and what, where is he at? He's at a charcoal fire. And he doesn't say... That smell of fish and charcoal reminds me of three nights ago. 
when I said, I'll never deny you. Jesus pulls Peter through all three of his horrible moments. He doesn't take Peter around them, and he doesn't keep Peter in them. So you got some preachers who only ever talk about sin. And then you have another pastor, America's pastor, I will not say who he is, a very positive gentleman, well-dressed, sort of a jerry curl, whatever, but like he's, he's there, and he says repeatedly, I will not preach on sin. Then you haven't preached once. It's not all you talk about, and it's not all you avoid. Jesus doesn't take you around it as if your sin didn't matter, and he doesn't leave you in it as if there's no other choice. He brings you through it to show you all the ways that he's been your Lord and your Savior. He pulls you through it so that you bear on your body the marks of his forgiveness, so that you bear on your body the fact that you needed to be saved, that you bear on your body the fact that you needed to repent, that you bear on your body the fact that you are not all that that you think you are, and that humbles you and gets you low to the ground to offer that forgiveness, not to steal the presence of God or send it away, but to tell people, open it up and look inside. There's, more, there's no golden tumors and mice in there. There's a rod that's been budding for thousands of years. There's manna that's still warm. And there are commandments that have been fulfilled. That's what's in the presence. We have 15 minutes left in the sermon, so I'm just having them come up now. Salem, I really, really want you to hear this. This is, this is everything right here. When God says to Adam, where are you? Don't read that like it's information. Read it like somebody who loves somebody else. If you love somebody else, if there's anyone in your life that you love, Think about God saying, Adam, where are you, in the context of love. He says, Adam, where are you? But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, Adam, I'm here. I'm here. And I'm not going to make you come out from behind that tree until you're ready. I'm not going to violate your sense of protectiveness. But I want you to know I'm here. Where are you? I say that to Sophia, where are you? So she knows I'm playing and not staring at my phone. Peter, do you love me? Is not Jesus looking for information. You know what it is? It's Jesus saying, Peter, I know you still love me. Better than you know that you love me. But look what he says, interestingly enough. Verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, everybody say finished. My God. Peter catches nothing, and then Jesus puts a whole bunch of fish into Peter's net, and Peter swims to Jesus, and then because Peter is now a good friend, he doesn't abandon the disciples. He hauls the catch for them to shore. Notice how when Peter is living in his sinful mentality, he's always competing against the disciples. They won't, you know, they'll, they'll fall away, but I won't. And now that he's been healed of that, that, that cancer, those tumors, now he's saying, guys, I know I swam to shore, but don't think I'm not going to carry the nets. You, you just go sit down. I got the nets. Something has changed in him. He's no longer in competition with his friends. He's friending them. And when it says, and when he gets there, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Salem, somebody in the room needs to hear this. They're out fishing. They don't know that Jesus already has fish and is cooking. 
sometimes in life you'll catch nothing. And sometimes in life your nets will be full. But no matter what, when you get there, he's already got fish for you. So if you think in life right now that you're catching nothing, that your life, it has no meaning to it, I promise you, get to this table because he already has meaning for you on it. He's already cooking. You can show up to heaven with nothing but denials, and he's going to say, smells good, doesn't it? I've been waiting for you. I knew you were coming. I've been cooking. But then he says, take some of the fish that you brought and put them here. He's interested in your work but he doesn't need it for you to sit down at the table with him. So you can go to work tomorrow knowing that your job doesn't give you value. There's already value for you on the grill. It doesn't give you meaning or purpose. There's already meaning and purpose for you on the grill. He's already cooking. Even when you're trying to catch if you catch a lot, he's so excited. Bring, put, put, put some of your fish down on top of my fish. If you catch nothing, he's like, you're probably tired. When, when you catch nothing, that means you worked longer. Read into the metaphor. Some of us are looking for love. We're trying to catch love. And when you catch nothing, some people catch it so early and you just want to slap them. We, we've been in love since the third grade. Okay, that's so good. I'm so happy for you. I'm so happy that you've never had to date before. That's great. Some of us haven't found it in our own life, our children, our spouse. Even in our relationship with God, we're, we're going through motions, but we're, we don't feel it. He's saying, listen, even if you've caught nothing, I know you're tired. I know you're exhausted. Sit down. And it says this, after breakfast. Jesus doesn't deal with Peter's sin the way we deal with sin, but he also doesn't deal with Peter's sin in the time frames we deal with sin. What we would have said is, before you sit down, let's get this straight. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. So we'll, we'll, we'll get to your sin. I'm more excited to eat with you than I am to talk about what happened a few days ago. Jesus saying, I want my table to let you know what I think about your sin. Woman, where are your accusers? There's no one here to condemn you, and neither do I condemn you. Now stand up and go and sin no more. Does he ignore the sin? No. But he talks about it last. After he sends away accusation. After he says, stand up on your own two feet. You're not a weak woman. You're a strong woman. And you don't need to be doing this. And now go and sin no more. He only talks about sin after breakfast. What do I love to say on Sundays? And after supper, he took the cup. After after, God bless you, after, after, I'm friends with you, after a few drinks and some food, and we can talk about the other stuff. And when it gets to the other stuff, he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? What did he change his name to? Say it with boldness. He said, your name is Simon, but I'm going to call you. But now he's saying, Simon. He's saying, I'm, not, I'm going way back to before you met me. Son of John, I'm even going all the way back to your dad. I'm going all the way back here. I'm going all the way back here. Because I want you to know that you can't be Peter until you know that I love Simon as much as I love Peter. You can't be Peter until you stop running from Simon. You can't be who I've called you to be until you realize that I loved who you were at the worst of it. 
You cannot move forward in life until you hear me call out Simon, son of John. I'm going all, I'm going generations back. And I'm saying, do you love me? And every time, like at verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter. See, the author knows what Peter doesn't know yet. That there's a war between sin and grace in everybody. So Peter is always called Simon Peter all through the gospel. Because there's always turmoil. But in the book of Acts, in the book of Acts it says, and Peter stood up and said. Not because God got rid of Simon, but because God let Peter know, I love Simon. And now you can be Peter. There are three questions. Ian, can you put all of them up? All three of them you can just put up. Next Sunday, whether I was here or not, we were going to have a service geared toward emotional healing and stress relief. And so this sermon is designed not for an altar call today, but for you to eat this meal all week and sit in the presence of God next Sunday with just music, no preaching. That kind of worked out, but God is very administrative. And I want you to think about these three questions. Every time God says, do you love me? I want us to ask ourselves these three questions. As if God is saying, Salem, do you still love my life? Meaning, Personally, when you wake up in the morning, are you passionate about me? Do you still love my life? Do you still have butterflies when you open your Bible? Do you still open your Bible? Do you still long for me when a day gets so crazy and we don't get to talk? Do you miss me at the end? Do you still love my body? the people. And you might be saying, I'm afraid to love your life. I'm afraid to love your body. And I'm afraid to be sent on mission. I'm afraid to be anointed. I'm afraid to be called. Because there's these darn golden tumors in my life that I can't stop forgetting about. And he's saying, what tumors? What are you talking about? I don't remember. Sit in my presence a while. Every time Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? It's God saying, Adam, where are you all over again? And it's creating in Peter the healing that Peter needs to the point where Peter's weeping by the end. Do you love my mission? Involvement in what God is doing. Is our involvement with our stuff pulling us away from or sending us into what God has? And are we bringing people with us? Are we bringing the world with us? Are we friends that are becoming closer than brothers and sisters? Is there a golden tumor in between you and somebody you know you need to forgive that needs healing? Is your parenthood defined by how well your kids are turning out, which is really to say, is it defined by the mistakes you think you've made? If I would have just... He wants to heal all of that next week. He just wants you to sit the first verses of the Bible and the Spirit of God hovered over the chaos. That's what he wants to do next week. And if you, if you still feel comfortable watching from home, and we, we understand it is, it's getting a little crazy out there again. Make space for this, please. Jacqueline is going to be here. She's going to kind of pilot the ship next week. 
guide us through the service. Let us know what she feels the Holy Spirit is saying. Remind us of these three questions. But what is blocking us from saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord? What is blocking it? What needs to be healed? Confession, and then we'll come to the table. <laughs> I said that, made you all freaked out. My, I'm going to confess. It was just this morning when I got to church that I realized something I've been, I'm afraid of. I was a little rude to Jacqueline this morning. I wish she was still here. This would be... She'd probably score a point or two here if she heard me say this out loud. Just kidding. I was, I was snippy. We got back from vacation yesterday. And it's like the Saturday going on vacation, the Saturday coming home are where Satan lives. And I got up this morning, and everything just feels a little chaotic. And I'm sitting here saying, in a few days, I'm not going to be able to help. And, you know, Jacqueline's back hurts and stuff. And it's like, how am I going to sit here and watch my pregnant wife do stuff? I'm going to be like that guy on, like, a movie that's got, like, Cheeto dust on his shirt. And he's watching the office for the 15th time in a row and Jacqueline's going to come and be like, I hate my life so much right now. <laughs> See, when I was in my early 20s, I didn't have a good work ethic. I was very lazy. I worked hard to just do enough to not have to work. And it caused a lot of problems. And when I met Jacqueline and I got involved in her family, they have a beautiful work ethic. And I learned how to be responsible and take ownership of my life and get things done that need to get done and not put off to tomorrow what I could do today. And I learned it took years, years for me to have the kind of work ethic where, okay, guess what? Now, now we can run a nonprofit through a pandemic because we've learned how to take responsibility. And here's what I realized. I'm afraid to be served for three months because I don't want to go back to being that guy. Just hit me this morning. I was agitated this morning, not because I was saying, why is, why is the house seem a little chaotic, but because I'm saying I'm not going to be able to support the family and I'm going to have to sit there and be supported and I don't want to go back to being that Cheeto dust guy. <laughs> And I thought of this message, and the Holy Spirit said, what Cheeto dust guy? That's not you anymore. You're worried about it. That's how I know you won't go back to being that person. When you were that person, you weren't worried about it at all. <laughs> you loved every minute of it. It irks me now. And the Holy Spirit is saying, that's the change in you. You can go fishing. And you can catch nothing. And you'll still have everything. That's my real confession to you. What is yours going to be next week? What thing has you every bit of stress that you're experiencing promise you it's coming from some very simple place that's so simple you would never even think to look there. And it's got you all bound and tight over here. And it's just, it's God saying, hey, you're afraid. And, 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 and to use this analogy, he's saying to me, he's saying, he's saying, Peter, you're still afraid of Simon. Simon was lazy. And you think that as your foot heals for a few months, that you're going to go back to being Simon. But I love Simon. See, that's the difference. God's not saying to me, don't go back to being that guy. I hated that guy. He's saying, I loved him. I died for him. I ministered to him. I sent him into an amazing family. I taught him. So if you ever did go back there, all you're going to experience is my love that got there before you did. You can't fall backwards. There's no such thing as backsliding. There's only moving forward while we fall and learn. There's no backsliding. There is no backsliding in the kingdom. You can't backslide an omnipresent God. You can't fall away from a God who's where you're falling to. Where you're going to fall to. Exactly. 
you fall away from him and you land on him. He's the cliff you fell off. He's the net that caught you and he's every inch of the way down. I want next week to be powerful in a calm, quiet sort of way. I want the worship team to just create an ambiance for us to sit and have a very different kind of service. Let the Holy Spirit talk to you because you can't figure out where the golden tumors are. You want to know why? Because they're in too obvious of a place. You'll never be able to see it. It's not complicated. It's only complicated because you're complicated. (laughs) I'm complicated. Peter's complicated. That's why Jesus had to show up to him a bunch of times. Let's let the Holy Spirit breathe on us next week. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Part of why I'm going long is just because I'm going to miss this for four weeks. It's too much fun. You're too cool of a church to preach in front of. I, you know, some of my friends who pastor say, Can, how, how honest are you in front of your church? And I'm like, e. Like, you really are? The, I said, it's not me. This is not virtue in me. This is, this is the quality of the people I preach to. We can be honest with each other in this room. You have created in this space, Salem, an environment where we can truly become friends because we can be honest and not shock each other. Raise your hand if you'd be shocked that the person next to you is a sinner. See? No one's shocked. I said to Jacqueline last night, I said, you know, you know the whole the grass, everybody's upset because they always think the grass is greener. At the end of the day, everybody's grass is brown. It's not greener on e- either side of the fence. We're all trying to water it together. That's what's happening here. This is a church, it's just brown grass that we need Jesus to hover over and, and water and, and reseed and make new again. Amen? Everyone can fit here. It's not a place of backsliders. It's a place of people who rise and fall with God every day and get picked up by him and get invited to his table as friends, which is unheard of. I love how Peter shows up in the Eucharist prayer. He's not named, but he shows up. Thomas shows up. Judas shows up in one phrase on the night when he was betrayed. That's Judas. That's Peter. That's Thomas. That's Karina. That's me. It's my mom. It's my dad on his birthday, wherever he is. Happy birthday, Dad. That's all of us. On the night when we enshrined our sin and pushed away the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant opened up and took the bread out and said, this has been sitting in this box for so long, and now I'm taking it out and saying, it's actually my body, and it's actually broken for you for this night. And then after supper, after he hung out and befriended the ones who were going to send him away, he took the cup and he said the most encouraging words, this is the blood of the new covenant. And the new covenant doesn't count sin the way the old one did. Because it's mediated by a different priest and a different kind of blood. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. And so he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And he makes enemies his friends by healing them of the cancer they're holding on to. Holy Spirit, I pray that you descend on this bread and this cup and make it for your people the body and blood of Jesus, the food and the drink of new and unending life in him. And sanctify us also, that we also might become your body and go into the world and say, this is our forgiveness offered to you. 
You're welcome at the table. The Spirit isn't the only one who says come in the book of Revelation. It's the Spirit and the bride that say come. Why? Because the church is saying what the Spirit is saying. And what is the Spirit saying? Come. What is the qualification? All ye who thirst. Not all ye who got it right. If you're thirsty for more, you're invited to this table. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Would you partake with me this morning? Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.